you shall not murder. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Leah. Well, good afternoon, Doxology. It's good to be back with you, and a warm welcome to any of you who may be new joining us for the first time. My name is Steve, and we are going through the Ten Commandments, and we named this series Set Free to Enjoy God and Love Others. So this is how we should frame the Ten Commandments, but also by extension, any of the commandments that we see in God's Word. And the reason why we're calling it that is because I think for whether you're grew up in the church or not, we tend to view the law of God as either something that this upset or peeved deity just wanted to give us to kill our fun, uh, or at best, it's just something we have to deal with, you know, if we follow Jesus. But as we've been saying throughout the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, they were given to a people who for 400 years, their entire existence was defined by they were slaves. So all they knew was they existed for nothing more than to be a commodity for somebody else's exploitation and someone else's enjoyment. And so God frees them from Israel and says, here's how you live as free people. Here's how you live now with a new identity where you're not defined by what you produce for somebody else, but you're defined by just because I love you for you. And so it is for us. That's the same way we should view God's law. God has freed us from the slavery of sin, the slavery of self-absorption and self-centeredness. And he gives us his law because the law reflects his life-giving and generous character. And so as we walk in God's commandments, it's how we actually enjoy him and love other people. And so that's, that's how we should always view the, the commandments of God. And so this evening we get to the sixth commandment. It's the most succinct in the list. It's just two words in Hebrew, and it's thou shall not murder. And I think when we first read this, at least this is how I've always viewed this commandment, is it's kind of like if, you t- if you're taking a really difficult exam in college and the professor gives you a super easy question, you know, just to make you feel a little good about yourself. It's like, all right, I've been missing probably 50% of these questions. At least I know I can get this slammed down. You know, that's what we think when we see, oh, thou shall not murder. Good. Got it. You know, let's, let's, close in prayer and move on to the seventh commandment. I think in particular, we all like it because few of us break it, but all of us are protected by it, right? But Jesus, as normal, comes along and he says, not so fast, not so fast. So let's just look at this commandment under these two headings. Okay, thou shalt not murder. First, let's ask, what does it mean? Like, what, what are the implications of the commandment? Because it's deeper than it first appears. And then number two, what are ways that we can apply it? Okay, so what does the commandment mean, as obvious as it may first appear? And number two, how do we actually apply it? Okay, so uh, what does it mean? So it says, you know, thou shalt not murder, commandment number six. And consider the context that God is giving this, giving this command to the Israelites. So the Israelites, they were in Egypt, and for 400 years, the assumed ethic that they lived in, the air that they breathed, was that some lives are, mer- are worth more than others. 
Okay, so the Israelites, they were enslaved simply because they were Hebrew and not Egyptian. And in Exodus 1, you see Pharaoh gives an edict to have all the baby boys of the Hebrews murdered and keeping the girls alive, right? So again, they just keep saying some lives are worth more preserving than others. So when God liberates them out of Egypt, he says, I know it's just intuitive for you now, you know, that some people are more worth giving life to than others, but that won't be so for those who belong to me. All lives are worth protecting. All lives need to be given life because every human being is made in the image of God. And so what God's doing here, when he says, thou shalt not murder, he's not just giving the simple negative of don't kill anyone, but he's paving the way for the positive. We saw this in week one, all the commandments, the negatives paved the way for the positive. In other words, it's not just thou shalt not murder, but because you're made in the image of and you're in communion with a generative God who gives life, you're to be a life giver. You're to seek the betterment of those around you. And then Jesus come along and he, he doubles down on this because he knows we like to take the, you know, the, the, the path of least resistance. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about the commandment, thou shalt not murder. And he says, even if you harbor bitterness in your heart or you hold contempt in your heart towards someone else, you view, view someone else as less than, that's tantamount to murder. And then later on in Matthew 22, he summarizes the law by saying the essence of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, is, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, but also love your neighbor as yourself. And so when Jesus says the law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself, what he's saying is you're to seek the preservation of every life around you, and you're to seek the prospering of other people around you just as much as you seek the prospering of yourself. So hopefully you can already see we're, we're not off the hook so easily. Okay, this is really difficult to do. And and we saw this in week one, the, the, um, the name of the series, right, is set free to enjoy God and love others, right? So God has freed us to bring goodness to other people. And the way our culture tends to view freedom is more in the negative sense, right? So I'm free to live as I please. Or you read all the time or just hear all the time, it's spoken as if it's as obvious as gravity, right? Everybody should be free to live as they see fit as long as they don't what? as long as they don't harm anybody. And amen, okay, let's, let's live by that ethic, but God, God calls us to something better, okay? It's not just the negative of do no harm, but it's the positive of bring positive goodness to other people. And here's how C.S. Lewis put it in one of his sermons, The Weight of Glory. He, he opens the sermon this way. He says, If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christian men of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened. A negative term has been substituted for a positive. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. And then here's the key. As if our abstinence and not their or others' happiness was the important point. You see that? It's so true. And so consider even if, like, let's not just look at, you know, the culture out there, you know, how they define freedom, but think even in the Christian life, if you grew up in the church, how much you viewed following Jesus mainly as what you're not supposed to do. 
You know, as if Jesus has only invited us into a life of sin management. You know, just, we have to say no to this and no to that. And yes, Jesus does tell us to say to no some things, but saying no isn't the point. Okay, saying no brings us to neutral, and then it's to free us up to bring goodness, to seek goodness, both in the things we meditate on, but also to seek the betterment of those around us. Because this is really, it's, it's such a different way of living, right? Union with Jesus, it's not just saying no, okay, but let's pursue goodness as a community. And so that's the essence of the command. You can just boil it down to be a life giver, okay, is what this commandment is saying. So it's obviously such a sweeping command. I mean, okay, be a life giver. See you later, guys. It's, it's almost just too big to try to do. So I want to help us look at some very, they're, they're hard, but very simple and doable things that we can practice uh, as a church and as individuals to practice this commandment, being life givers to other people. So here, here are just a few ways we can practice this. So first, lift up other people around you. As you go about your work and in the church, think about lifting other people up around you. And here's what I mean by that. So there's a friend of mine, he has his doctorate and he's in academia. And he said that he was having a conversation with his friends recently where they realized that as you climb up the ladder of academia, you either develop into a Palpatine, they call it, or a Jedi. This is a Star Wars reference. I'm just going to go, if you haven't seen it, how dare you? Okay, so you either develop into a Palpatine or a Jedi. And you're a Palpatine, typically, if you're, you know, you're a little bit more of a senior scholar. And what you do is you see any incoming person, especially if they're pretty bright and gifted, as an enemy. Like, it's a zero-sum game. So you may even use your minions underneath you to try to prevent them from getting publishing opportunities, right? Because you don't want them to take away your territory. Or you, you can develop into a Jedi. And the difference between a Palpatine and a Jedi really comes down to whether or not you practice the Sixth Commandment. And you develop into a Jedi if you, you don't view things as, you know, just, okay, you're trying to protect your little area of turf. But what you want everybody to do in your field is you want people to pursue the truth. And so what you do is you do everything in your power. You use your resources, you use your connections to give other people opportunities to be known and, and to get opportunities, even if it means they outshine you because you care about other people's development and not just, you know, like you want to claim the mountain for yourself. I just thought that was very appropriate because it pretty much operates that way in any field. And I was thinking about it even before I worked as a pastor. So as I stepped into more of a senior level position, I had uh, people underneath me. I had interns and younger people in the company who I was supervising. It's really embarrassing to admit. But so I would teach those underneath me and I would teach interns, but I would hide like, my most precious sources of information. Like, I wouldn't tell them where I got it because I didn't want them to surpass me. You know, in my company, I didn't want them to outshine me or for, other, for me to become obsolete. And it took a mentor of mine, uh, she's not even a Christian, but she was basically teaching me how to be a Christian, where she said, hey, Steve, like, you're operating on a scarcity mindset, right? You're, you're assuming, oh, if I really empower these people, nothing's going to be left for me. How about you actually, like, really help these people? I was like, oh, that's a that's a good idea. And so just for yourself, you know, I mean, I'm sure in a lot of your jobs, right, just the, the assumed ethic is, yeah, I might, I'll be nice as long as it doesn't cost me something, right? And it's often a doggy dog world out there, but as a follower of Jesus, we're called to give other people opportunities, and act, even if that means they may outshine you in your workplace, 
Okay, or in the church, we do this too. Um, a number of times I've seen preachers, worship leaders, people up front who get very jealous when somebody else comes in who's more gifted than they are. So just by definition as believers, it shouldn't be that way. Or even as a community group and discipleship, in a community group and discipleship group setting, just think, you know, do you like to be, and I know a lot of you aren't like this, but we always need to check ourselves. Do you like being the person in the room or in the circle who's seen as the wise one, right, or the one with the answers? And this is one reason why we're always encouraging multiplication, right, for discipleship group facilitators to raise up new leaders and community group leaders to raise up new leaders because we want to see and we want to help one another develop into the people God has made them to be. So that's the first thing is just think about, you know, almost wherever you are, even if it's in a small way, you can use the abilities God's given you to lift up and to elevate those in your circle. Okay, so that's the first one, okay? One way we can practice the sixth commandment, um, giving life to and lifting up other people. So number two, how can we practice this commandment? And this may seem like a non sequitur, but just follow me here. So this one is we should be more wise with our social media consumption or just more wise with our media consumption in general. So because market research has determined that it's actually easier to motivate people and to elevate people's passion and to get them to click on a link or a product if you use outrage and anger as opposed to something like joy or peacefulness. And we actually get dopamine hits when we see other people fail. There's one reason why those, those fail videos are so popular. And even just very recently, you know, there was the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial that took place just down the road in Fairfax a few weeks ago. And I didn't see this, but someone told me that on TikTok, apparently, I mean, millions of people were using the trial for entertainment and filming themselves mocking, you know, either Johnny Depp or Amber Heard. And it just, it says something about our fallen nature that we enjoy watching other people suffer or that we enjoy watching other people struggle. And so when it, when it comes to media and social media, can it be used for good? Absolutely. But we should be very discerning as we think about, you know, what are the comment threads we choose to indulge in? What are the links we decide to click on? Because, you know, I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 5, we'll visit it in more depth in a little bit, but to even harbor bitterness or anger in our heart is akin to murder. And so even just the things we watch, they may seem innocent, but it's forming us in a certain way, either to be a life giver, right, or to just, you know, benefit in a twisted way off of the latest outrage, outrage cycle, you know, or something hard that someone's going through. It's as you think about even the shows you watch, the media you consume, or, or the people that you follow, you know, are the people that you follow and listen to, do they model honoring people that they disagree with? You know, do they model thoughtfulness? Are they quick to give a hot take on something? Are they, do they think about it for a while, you know, before giving an opinion? Okay. As followers of Jesus, we should think about the media that we consume. Okay, so that's number two, as we think about thou shalt not murder. Number three, this is, this is a very application-heavy, very a- application-heavy sermon, but God's inviting us to life here. Okay, so the third one here is thinking about mercy ministry. So there's this 16th century reformer named Martin Bootser, and he 
studied a lot and he talked a lot about a Christian society and what a society should look like if there are a lot of believers and followers of Jesus in that society and what it should mean for neighborly love. And one of the things he said is if you're in a society where a lot of people, really just more than zero, people have to beg in order to make a living. He said that any society that tolerates that kind of poverty you can't call yourself a Christian society. You can't. Because he's just echoing what God says from A to Z in the scriptures, where he says a key marker that you know that you've received my grace and my mercy is if you go out of your way to help other people who can't give you something back in return for helping them. And God isn't asking us to solve the poverty crisis in our nation, right? It's a massive issue. All he's asking us to do is just to do what we have with what we have where we're placed. And it doesn't have to be massive, but just, so, just an encouragement to you guys. I, I know you, you all really care about people who are hurting it, you know, it, in this church, but just want to encourage you, for those of you who haven't connected yet with our Mercy Program— uh, Lori, our Director of Mercy, you, you should get to hear from her later on in our member gathering about updates with our Mercy partnerships. But our Mercy team has made it very easy to connect with ways to help people in our city who don't have much. And the main populations we're uh, working with right now are supporting families of foster children and supporting homeless families. And I know, you know, Lori and the Mercy team's goal is to have all of us in the church involved in some way, shape, or form in our mercy ministry. So just an encouragement to you. It doesn't have to be huge, but just talk to them and see, even if you're in a really busy season, just what's something small or simple that you can do to be a life giver, right? As we're in communion with a God who gave us life first. Okay, so thinking about those who, who are poor, the needy. Number four, and here's where we'll look at Jesus expanding this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. Reconcile quickly. Reconcile quickly. So let's look at this uh, in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is hungry, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Oof, okay. So here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying it's always a sin to get angry. Anger in itself is a neutral emotion, right? And And there's some instances where if you don't get angry when seeing an evil. For example, what happened in Texas a few weeks ago. If that doesn't anger you in some way, shape, or form, there's something calloused in your heart. What Jesus is referring to here is when somebody wrongs you, and yeah, you may, I mean, anger is a response to injustice, but when that anger sours and you hold on to it and it turns into bitterness, you know, where you just, someone becomes dead to you, all of a sudden, right? Or he put up distance between you and that person in some way. Or, you know, this line here where he says, whoever says you fool, that's a sign of contempt, where you view one human being as less than another human being. 
Jesus says there's something murderous going on there. And so a, a brief pastoral aside here, you know, before we talk about anger and, and reconciliation, because we're called to be reconcilers, Jesus is not talking here about situations of egregious evil that have been committed against you. So because sometimes somebody, especially in the case of, say, serious abuse, where somebody has wronged you in such a deep way, where it is neither wise nor loving nor possible to reconcile with that person. And what the Bible does is it gives us a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. And the church has confused this a lot. So forgiveness happens just in the privacy of your own heart and vertically between you and God, where you let go of the need to see someone else suffer, and you trust that God will mete out justice. Okay, I will repay, as the Lord says in Romans 12. Okay, that's forgiveness. Reconciliation takes place between you and the party who's wronged you, or between you and if, or you, if you wronged that party. It happens between two people. And, there are, and we're always called to do the former. We're always called to work through and get to a place of forgiveness. But the scriptures also show us that sometimes either due to the nature of what was done to you or because the person refuses to change, there are some times where it may be necessary to end a relationship. And so see the biblical wisdom here. Okay, on the one hand, if Jesus tells us, and we're told in the scriptures that we're never to pile on spiritual abuse on top of someone who's already been abused by saying you need to go reconcile with your abuser. But at the same time, when it comes to just the normal, you know, the 99% of things with your bosses and colleagues and family members and church members, when people wrong you or anger you or irritate you, Jesus says go reconcile quickly. So we're not let off the hook, you know, just the normal day-to-day things where people upset us. And so notice what Jesus says here. He says in verse 23, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. When he's talking about offering your gift at the altar, he's talking about church. And so I think it goes without saying Jesus knows that church is really important. But here he's saying there's actually, there's something that's more important than going to church. If you, if you're in church and there is something between you and another person, even if you didn't do something to someone else, but you know that someone's upset with you. Because I was thinking about this for me. Sometimes if, if I know someone is upset with me, I'm like, what's their problem? You know, they should come with me if they have a problem with me. But Jesus is saying, even if, even if that's the case, you should stand up out of the pew and go into the lobby and take out your cell phone and seek reconciliation with that person. Why? Because we can't accept with open arms God reconciling himself to us when he was the purely innocent party and we were in rebellion with him and then refuse to offer reconciliation with other people. And as James 3 puts it, we can't with the same tongue praise the Lord and then curse a human being who's made in his image. And so the invitation for y'all tonight, you know, especially in a culture that does not practice reconciliation very well, 
right? We either are encouraged to flaunt our anger you know, with other people. You can, believe, can you believe he or she's such an idiot? Or we just hide it. We don't want to reconcile because it'll make us uncomfortable. Is there anyone you're angry with? Is there anyone who you know is upset with you? And as a community of life givers, we're called to be people who initiate reconciliation and we reconcile quickly. See where he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser in verse 25 while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you to the judge. And the judge, and the judge to the guard, and there you be put in prison. One of the implications of this is the longer you wait to reconcile with someone or to ask for forgiveness or to try to repair the relationship, the more your heart just starts to make justifications of why you don't need to do it, the more that person becomes dead to you in your heart. This is part of why he's saying it's tantamount to murder. So he's saying, do it now. This is why in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, He doesn't say blessed are the peace lovers. It's easy to love peace. Um, But to be a peacemaker means actually you enter into conflict in order to bring about life, to breathe life back into a relationship. There was a time when I was in college and there was this individual who was, it was this large ring of friends, and he was, he was a few degrees removed from me, but we knew who each other was. And one day, I had maybe two conversations with him in my life, but one day he, we didn't have each other's phone numbers, so he sends me a Facebook message. He says, hey, you know, can we get together? Because there's just something I want to talk about. And he wanted to meet in this, like, private pinball arena, like somewhere on the campus where no one else was going to go. So I was like, I told my roommates, here's where I'm going. If I don't come back in 30 minutes, you know, come looking for me. So I meet with him, and he said, hey, I just want you to know, about six months ago, you did this thing, and I don't even think it was wrong, and I'm sure you thought nothing of it, but what you did, it made me really angry toward you and very jealous toward you, and just for the last six months, I've honestly been stewing, and I just wanted to confess that to you, and I just wanted to And he was like, maybe this sounds really weird. He's like, dude, we barely know each other. He said, I just wanted to ask for forgiveness. And if there's any way, even just in any effort to repair that relationship. And that spoke so much to me. And we got to talk about it. And then actually over a decade later, he ended up being on the board of Acts 29 assessors that was assessing me when I was being assessed as a planter. And I was like, I really hope your forgiveness was genuine because otherwise I'm so screwed. And, but it was. Like, his forgiveness was really genuine. And, you know, what he did there was because he modeled that to me, that there were cases that happened in the future that I was quicker to seek out reconciliation because of what he did for me. And that's what God invites us to do when he calls us to be life givers. Okay, so finally, number five, how do we practice uh, the sixth commandment? And we're to enjoy relationship with the life giver himself. Okay, so here's what I love about knowing Jesus. He doesn't say, okay, guys, I have these really hard things for you to do. Okay, you need to lift up those around you, even if it means you lose opportunities and they outshine you. You need to be mindful of what you consume on media. You need to get involved with mercy ministry. You need to reconcile with people, even though it's probably going to be really uncomfortable. See ya. No, he invites us to do these things as the life giver himself. 
Because what Jesus tells you is, when you were alienated from me, I sought you out, and I lived for you, and on the cross I said, Father, forgive them as I was being murdered, and then I rose again from the dead in order to give you new life, and I continue to breathe life into you as I intercede on your behalf. We saw that in our liturgy earlier. Jesus saves us to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. And I'm bringing you into a new creation where you will experience life in all of its fullness. I even gave you the very faith that you have to believe, and I will sustain you into the end. And so because that is the Savior and the Lord who breathes life into our lives, we get to then go out, empowered by him, to be life givers for other people because he actually empowers you to live this way. He actually enables you to have the kind of disposition where you're not just thinking about personal happiness or self-advancement, but seeking to give life to other people because the very one who saves you is also the very one who empowers you to live as one who is free. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us as a community uh, who have first received life from you um, to go out and to not just think about not hurting other people, but actively giving life into others as you've first done it for us. Uh, especially in the area of reconciliation and anger and bitterness, where this can often be uh, such a complicated and intense uh, situation, Lord. I pray that you will give everyone here the the wisdom uh, and the joy and the support that they need to repair, um, or at least as far as it depends on them, to repair any relationship that may be severed currently. I pray that you'll give us the power to do it as you promised that you will. And it's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.